Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with reports emerging from workers at the Candle Factory in Kentucky and the Amazon warehouse in Illinois that were destroyed by tornadoes, revealing that efforts to evacuate the premises when the tornado warning sirens were blaring were impeded by supervisors who threatened workers that they would be fired if they walked off the job to seek shelter at home in the absence of suitable shelters at work. Joining us is Debbie Berkowitz, a practitioner fellow at the Kilmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University, who until recently was the National Employment Law Project's Worker Safety and Health Program Director, following six years serving as Chief of Staff and then Senior Policy Advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Her past positions also included Health and Safety Director of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Health and Safety Director of the Food and Allied Services Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, and she joins us to discuss how few rights and little health and safety protections non-union workers have. Then we'll look further into the almost Dickensian disregard for workers American employers and supervisors have, and speak with Will Bunch, an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He blogs at attitude.com, that's spelled A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com, and is the author of The Backlash, Right-Wing Radicals, High-Def Huxtus, and Paranoid Politics in the Age of Obama, and The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. He joins us to discuss his latest article at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Nothing is more important than Team Trump's January PowerPoint urging a full-blown coup and tornadoes ripped the roof off American capitalism. Then finally, with Liz Cheney, the Republican co-chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, when announcing criminal contempts of Congress charges against Mark Meadows, asked rhetorically, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to impede Congress's proceedings? Words almost identical to the text of the federal criminal statute. The likelihood that Trump may eventually be charged arises as a real possibility. Joining us is Ruth ben a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who is an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, The Washington Post and other publications. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present and she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power and how to counter them. And she has an article at MSNBC, Mark Meadows' PowerPoint is about more than January the 6th. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free, corporate free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now, Debbie Berkowitz, who's a practitioner fellow at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University, who until recently was the National Employment Law Project's Worker Safety and Health Program Director, following six years serving as Chief of Staff and then as Senior Policy Advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Her past positions also include Health and Safety Director of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Health and Safety Director of the Food and Allied Services Trade Department of the AFL-CIO. Welcome to Background Briefing, Debbie Berkowitz. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the reports now about how workers at the Candle Factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, were 
told by their supervisors they can't leave, even though the sirens were wailing, a uh, warning of, a, of an impending tornado. And similar conditions existed also in Illinois at an Amazon plant where workers apparently were told they couldn't leave, even though they wanted to go home, where they knew they had better and safer shelters. Right. I know. It's really tragic. And my heart goes out to all the families that have lost people. But I think the bottom line of what this exposed is how incredibly weak worker safety rights are in this country. Really, unless you have a union where they've negotiated stronger protections, workers really don't have the right, even if they believe that their job is unsafe and can cause physical harm or death, they really don't have a right to refuse work without being retaliated against. Um, Unfortunately, you know, employers, well, they're all at-will employees who can be fired for almost any reason. You know, there's some laws around you can't fire someone because of race or or religion, but really when it comes to worker safety, um, employers are really king and workers have very few rights. Well, we know that Amazon is quite adamantly against unionizing, um, although they may be losing that battle in Alabama at the Bessemer uh, Fulfillment Center, I guess it's called. But also, apparently, this Mayfield candle factory that got devastated, uh, where workers were not able to leave, and apparently wasn't a particularly useful shelter, that's also non-union. Entry-level jobs pay $8 an hour, they were also using prison labor. I mean, does this, is this lesson, think, penetrating the American consciousness that union jobs, as Biden keeps talking about good union jobs, well, they are a lot better, clearly, a lot safer than these non-union jobs. Yeah, that's totally true. I spent over 20 years in the labor movement negotiating on behalf of workers in the food industry Uh, for safer conditions. So I can just tell you from my own experience that unions made all the difference um, when it comes to worker safety. In addition, because workers had a union, they were more apt to complain to employers about unsafe conditions without fear of losing their job because the union contract would say that you can't fire someone just for, you know, any reason you'd like. And also they would call OSHA in more, you know, if an employer was not complying with the law. So I, I, I really, you know, the fact that they were using prison labor here is an, an indicator that they may have had a hard time getting workers in these factory. And uh, my heart goes out to the, the family who lost somebody who was a supervisor of these workers. But I also think, I'm not sure, I'm not even sure prison workers get paid. So this may have been some kind of thing that they were, the candle factory worked out with the lo- local prison. Um, but I think that, you know, you know, when it comes to worker safety, people don't really sort of think about it. You know, during COVID, it was really clear employers, outside of healthcare really had no requirements by OSHA to give workers masks or six feet apart or protect them. And so, you know, workplaces were a significant driver of this pandemic because, again, you know, a lot of employers, you know, when the production, it's the Christmas season, they want to get things done and safety like falls to the bottom. But I also think we really need to revisit the, you know, how weak worker safety rights, because even if workers were injured or killed on the job due to employer negligence, they can't sue their employer. They can't sue their employer to enforce their worker safety rights. You know, they have, it's really a, a very weak. And so therefore uh, unions make a big difference. I mean, the president is completely right on this in every way. Unions make a world of difference, which is why Amazon's fighting this, because as you know, if you've read any of the reports that have been out recently, Amazon warehouses have among the highest entry rates of any industry in the country. I mean, they really have a lot of work to do when it comes to worker safety. And again, I'm speaking with Debbie Berkowitz, who's a practitioner fellow at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University, who until recently was the National Employment Laws Project's Worker Safety and Health Program Director, following six years serving as Chief of Staff and then as Senior Policy Advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. And her past positions also include Health and Safety Director 
of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Health and Safety Director of the Food and Allied Services Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. So I understand that some of your former colleagues at the uh, National Employment Law Project have been working to pass a bill in Illinois to protect workers against unfair firings, similar to what we're talking about here, where workers were told that if they left the job with an impending tornado looming down on them, that they would lose their jobs. And some of them, eight in in Illinois, and I believe at least eight, perhaps more in Kentucky, lost their lives. What's the status of that bill in Illinois? Well, it's been introduced, but it it has not passed. And I do know that our colleagues are working hard on it. These are called just cause bills that would require that if an employer is going to fire a worker, they have to do it for just cause, not just because they don't like your shoelace uh, or anything else. It would really try to build in some just basic worker protections so workers would feel free to complain about worker safety conditions or even say, I can't, you know, this is really dangerous and I'm going to refuse this job and not have to sacrifice, you know, their lives for a paycheck here. So it's really a sort of a basic kind of bill. And I think a lot of people that work in white collar jobs or in, um, you know, heavily unionized professions, they probably aren't aware that you really, employers really can fire you for any reason in a non-union workplace. And it's really important that workers have some basic rights when it comes to their employment of and not being so scared that they'd be fired if they just sort of complained about something or refused to do a job that they believed was hazardous. Well, it's pretty clear that there is a real problem here with global warming and the frequency now of floods, storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, and forest fires. And even though the Biden administration or Biden himself has not come out fully linking these tragedies over the weekend in Kentucky and Illinois and elsewhere uh, with global warming, it's pretty clear that, for example, these massive tornadoes normally happen, uh, historically happen in the spring, in March, April, and May. And that the fact that they're happening in, in December is because of unusual warm weather in December, which clearly has something to do with global warming. And the other thing that's clear about global warming vis-a-vis tornadoes is that tornadoes now are moving further and further to the east, where you have much denser populations. And Normally, you know, in the, in the past decades, they were ripping through rural areas, man, mainly farmland, so you didn't have that many casualties. In 1925, you had terrible casualties because it, it moved along a railway track and at the time when schools were coming out and thus had huge casualties. But the Mayfield one indicates that when you have more denser buildings, uh, you have more casualties. But as the, as the track of hurricanes now moves further to the east and where you have much denser populations, we're going to have more and more of these incidents. And are these companies like the Candle Factory and also Amazon, are they building proper shelters? Because it doesn't seem like either, in either case they had proper shelters. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. With climate change, it's really focusing the press, your attention, and thank you for doing the story, and others on all the deficiencies that exist right now in terms of the workplace. Um, And, you know, this is not the first time our tornado has hit an Amazon facility and workers have died. There was one a couple of years ago, I think in 2017 in Baltimore when this happened. So the company should have aware that this happens. And I think, you know, with the Amazon warehouse, I'm not even sure. I think Amazon's business model is that they don't actually build a warehouse, that they find somebody else to build it. They tell them, what it should look like, and then they lease it back. So it's a way of sort of outsourcing their responsibility. But I do think that because of the likelihood of these climate events happening more and more anywhere and everywhere, that, you know, a lot of businesses are going to have to sort of take a look at what are their emergency action plans, what happens, you know, when when there is of warning of a of a of a tornado coming or other significant weather event. I do think that's really important. So Debbie, given that you've worked for 
a long time in terms of trying to improve workers' safety and health, having worked for OSHA and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Food and Allied Service Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. What's your explanation for the attitude that owners, business owners and supervisors have towards their workers in America? It seems that you know, if you treat your workers well, they're much more productive and you have a much more efficient and happy, I guess is a way to describe it, environment. But if you treat your workers poorly, there's a lot of sort of pent-up anger and frustration, and it just seems so completely unnecessary. And the idea that these people are begging to leave when the sirens are blaring, that the tornado's coming, and they know that there's no proper shelters in this candle factory or in this Amazon warehouse, and they want to go home to where they have shelters and they're not allowed to go and they die. It's just so cruel, and I don't understand that mentality. But you must have experienced it before. So do you have any insight into why in in American capitalism there is this sort of slave-driver kind of mentality? Right. I think it doesn't have to be this way, but I would say I've been doing this work for 40 years, and I would say at least for the last 30 years, you've seen an incredible slide down in terms of labor standards. And that, you know, it's all about making a dollar for an employer and little or no emphasis on workers and worker retention. I mean, we always said at OSHA that, you know, safety pays, you would save money, uh, which is sort of what you said, to provide uh, safe conditions up front. But look at the Amazon business model, where a lot of their warehouses have incredibly high turnover and very high injury rates. You know, that's their model is just burn them out and chuck them through our, our warehouse and then just get the next worker. And, you know, I, I do think that, you know, people complain a lot about the government, you know, having over-regulation or this and that. But really, in the end, there isn't a whole lot of regulation of businesses in terms of worker and worker safety and, and wages. And employers are using this new model of trying to outsource um, responsibility for even complying with minimum wage laws, like Amazon is hiring staffing agencies or they're hiring subcontractors. Um, so, you know, you get this workplace where, you know, the worker is treated as though they're expendable. Um, and that's by the boss, you know, and, um, and that's why I think workers are looking to try to form a union. But, you know, when a worker tries to form a union, as you know, you've seen this in Alabama and we just, you know, you've seen this in other big companies like Dollar General um, or Starbucks. When workers try to form a union, the company comes in and says, no, that's going to ruin the workplace. Um, you can't do this. They even close down facilities in certain companies when they vote for a union because, you know, companies, the boss wants to be the king. And I think, uh, you know, that's not 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 great for, for anybody. I think, you know, every worker is valuable. No worker should have to sacrifice their life for a paycheck, and that makes a healthier economy. Well, Debbie Berkowitz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Glad to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Debbie Berkowitz, who's a practitioner fellow at the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University, who until recently was the National Employment Law Project's Worker Safety and Health Program Director, following six years serving as Chief of Staff and then a Senior Policy Advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Her past positions also include Health and Safety Director of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union and the Health and Safety Director of the Food and Allied Services Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking further into the almost Dickensian disregard for workers American employers and supervisors have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Will Bunch, who's an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at attitude.com, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com, and is the author of The Backlash, Right-Wing Radicals, High-Def Hucksters, and Paranoid Politics in the Age of Obama, and The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. And his latest articles at the Philadelphia Inquirer are Nothing is More Important Than Team Trump's January PowerPoint Urging a Full-Blown Coup and Tornadoes Rip the Roof Off American Capitalism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Will Bunch. Yes, Ian, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, uh, Will. And obviously the metaphor of the roof being ripped off of American capitalism happened in this candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, and it's still to this day, we don't know how many people died there. Initially, there was thought over 100 were working that night. And then there were subsequent reports that there were fewer numbers than that. Do we know exactly what the casualty figures are at this point? Um, well, not ex- exact. Well, I think we're, we're getting a little bit closer. I think, I think right now they're saying that uh, eight have been confirmed fatalities and eight are unaccounted for which at this point, I guess, is not good. I mean, what happened initially and what always happens in tragedies, but I think especially in this case, because, the, I mean, that's the whole point, is that this factory seems like a very chaotic, disorganized place. But, uh, um, you know, people ran off and they didn't know where they were. And and because of the tornado, there was not good phone service or if any phone service and there was no power. And so, so it took several days to figure out, you know, that's the reason why the initial numbers you heard possibly were so high, you know, in the dozens or scores of people because they just didn't know how to reach people. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're grateful that it's a lower number, but eight eight dead and eight unaccounted for still is, is still a huge tragedy. And, and and let's not forget another eight people passed away at an, at an Amazon uh, delivery depot. That's the term they use uh, in in southern Illinois. So we had two separate two separate kind of warehouse, industrial, factory facilities, each with eight fatalities. Well, in terms of the fatalities at the Amazon warehouse in Illinois, one of the fatalities was Larry Verdon, who texted his girlfriend, quote, Amazon won't let us leave. And Larry Verdon leaves behind uh, four children. So that's just heartbreaking. It is. It is. It's horrific. And, and, um, there's kind of similar stories out of the Kentucky facility as well in that people said that they were begging their bosses to just to be able to leave. And, but they were, there was this fear that if they left, they would be fired from their jobs. And, you know, and these, these are not cushy jobs. I mean, this is very difficult work. Uh, uh, some of the, some of the entry level workers are making as little as $8 an hour, or just, a, just above minimum wage. Um, uh, they, they also were using, uh, jail inmate labor. There were seven jail inmates working there. But, um, you know, I, this is one of the big unanswered questions, Ian, is, you know, were people allowed to leave? What sort of control did bosses exercise over over the workers? You know, uh, shouldn't they have had more advance warning that these storms were coming? Or there was a possibility, obviously, obviously predicting the exact path of a, of a tornado was impossible, but it, it had been reported all day that that tornadoes were likely in that area, uh, and yet the Christmas, the Christmas shopping rush, you know, took took precedence, you know. And and I think I think the other thing, uh, well, a number of things are going to be investigated, but another important thing is, you know, just what types of shelter, you know, safe places to go do these kind of facilities have? Uh, you know, in both places they said, oh, well, there was a secure room or a shelter that people went to, and obviously it didn't protect didn't seem to protect them from this storm. Now, these were super intense storms, which is a whole other issue tied in quite possibly to climate change. But, you know, there are so many questions. I mean, I know OSHA is investigating the Amazon situation. I think both both plants need full investigations of what can be done to protect workers from these kinds of storms, because these kinds of storms are becoming more prevalent with climate change. And according to uh, NBC News, 15 people asked to go home during the night shift shortly after the emergency alarm sounded at the candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky. So there was plenty of warning time and a lot of them wanted to go home because they felt that they had better 
shelters at their homes than they did at the factory. And apparently the factory shelter was inadequate. People were just sort of, you know, hunkered down in a corridor, from what I understand. Right. right. Well, 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 think, well, think about it. Your home, quite likely, and I'm not familiar with that area of Western Kentucky, but I would assume that many, many private homes there have basements, you know, that people can go into, which obviously is the safest kind of shelter you can go into for a tornado. Um, you know, these factories and these warehouses, for the most part, are built on giant concrete slabs. Um, so there is no ba- basement. So, you know, they can build these secure rooms, but there are they, rooms on top of a slab, you know, and if the storm is strong enough, like this one was, it obviously doesn't offer much protection. So, but maybe that's one of the things that need to be looked at, you know, is there some way to build more traditional storm shelters, you know, next to the, next to these buildings, maybe, you know, um, where people can go down underneath and uh, have more protection, but they were very exposed in this situation. Well, NBC News was reporting, I interviewed Elijah Johnson, 20, who was working in the candle factory in the back of the building uh, when several employees uh, wanted to head home. So they went and spoke to their supervisors and quoting Johnson, I asked to leave and they told me I'd be fired. Even with the weather like this, you're going to fire me, he asked. Yes, a manager responded. So this leads me to question, where is this culture of cruelty, this slave driver attitude in American capitalism. I mean, if you treat your workers well, they tend to work better and more productively. But if you abuse them like chattel, like cattle, yeah, uh, I, I mean, they, I mean, the word, the word, the word that keeps popping into my mind is is Dickensian. You know, that this is something that you would expect to hear from from a 19th century uh, factory and and not not in 2021, but. You know, when, when you think about it, I mean, one one thing that came to the American workforce in, in the 20th century and has virtually disappeared in the 21st century is the presence of strong labor unions, right? Because, um, you know, what do labor unions do? I mean, obviously they negotiate, you know, pay and these workers are clearly underpaid, but, but unions also are, are critical to negotiating safety standards for these plants. They give the workers a voice what is the procedure going to be for warning people when, when a dangerous storm is approaching, you know, um, shouldn't we have a, a, a type of shelter that's more safer for this type of tornado? Um, uh, you know, and, and, and without, without unions and, you know, I mean, the, the whole fight for unionization at Amazon, you know, starting with this plant down in Bessemer, Alabama, has been a big story this year because, you know, Amazon is, you know, I don't know where they rank among the employers, but if they're not the largest private employer right now, well, if, if they're not, it's only because they hire so many contractors who aren't on the Amazon payroll. But they're clearly becoming the largest source of jobs in the in the private sector, and they're completely non-unionized. And um, I think you see, you know, just like just like the um, Mayfield Consumer Products, the, the owners of the candle factory, also not unionized, and and you see the kind of rights that workers have in these situations, which is they're terrified of being fired, even when it comes to leaving and saving their lives with a, with a tornado approaching. You know, people people need an income, people need a job, and they have to make this kind of Sophie's choice between worrying about getting fired or worrying about getting uh, struck by this tornado. And of course, Amazon uh, bans employees from having cell phones on the job, and cell phones are vital, aren't they, in getting tornado warnings? Yeah. Now, it may not have been particularly relevant. Well, a couple things. One, I think they did loosen the standards a little bit under pressure because of the coronavirus situation. But also, I think more importantly, in this uh, Edwardsville, Illinois situation, hardly anybody at that plant was an actual Amazon employee. I mean, their whole model for these this uh, delivery network that they built is hiring people as private contractors. So I guess the good news, you know, I mean, it's being a contractor is bad in terms of not having any protections. But I guess one thing that's good is you probably are able to carry your cell phone because we know we know that some of these people like like Mr. Burden, you know, did contact their families on their cell phones. So um, but, yeah, this is the kind of this is the kind of control that a company 
uh, that's not unionized and that is really all about maximizing productivity from its workers and, and nothing else uh, can get away with can get away with rules like that. So what do we know about the owners of Mayfield Consumer Products in Mayfield, Kentucky, that, as you mentioned, entry-level jobs would pay $8 an hour, and that seven of the workers on Friday night when the tornado struck were inmates from the Grave County Jail. We obviously have made a deal. The owners of the factory had made a deal with the, the county. Yes. That's a traditional union-busting thing, using prison labor. So, yeah, what do we I know mean, about if, these people? Who are the yeah, owners? I, I've read I've read some of the, the reporting from the um, uh, you know Kentucky newspapers who are obviously doing a good job staying on top of the story. And um, uh, the owners, uh, it was started by a family, the Propes family. The woman, you know, apparently started making candles in, in her garage or wherever, and and, and built this company. Um, uh, it, it, it's run by run now by her son and they've moved to the son's hometown of Charleston, South Carolina. So they're kind of absentee owners and the son is involved in a lot of other more kind of hedge fundy type ventures uh, in addition to owning this candle factory. But, you know, clearly there's been this constant tension at this company of trying to get labor, but not pay a lot of money for it. Uh, you know, they're constantly claiming about, complaining about labor shortages and difficulties in finding good workers. And yet here they are advertising um, for jobs at $8 an hour and telling people, oh, and, the, and there's also going to be forced overtime and you'll have to work extra shifts on Friday, probably, which was the case this Friday when, when people were there, when the tornado hit. So, I mean, if, if nothing else, among all the other problems, I mean, it seems like the situation just cries out for the $15 living wage that Congress refuses to act up, act upon. I mean, workers deserve that kind of pay for working, for being, for working in these difficult situations, for one thing. And, uh, you know, I guess I don't think they would have as much of a problem finding labor and having lots of turnover and all the problems that they have if they paid people a decent wage. But, uh, Again, that's not how American capitalism seems to work these days. So in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Will Bunch, let's talk a little bit about your other article at, at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Nothing is more important than Team Trump's January PowerPoint urging a full-blown coup. What's your main takeaway from the PowerPoint that was among the, what, thousands of, of pages of documents that Mark Meadows handed over to the House select committee investigating January the 6th, and now, of course, he's reversed himself, but I think largely under pressure from Donald Trump. Right. Well, I mean, these, these documents are clearly a treasure trove of information, and, uh, you know, as a, result of, as a result of these emails and texts and other documents, we've learned quite a bit, or, you know, and, and now that it, the information is dribbling out to the public, the public is learning quite a bit about January 6th that we didn't know 11 months ago uh that's really helping us kind of put the whole picture in perspective and and i think what the you know this powerpoint which was developed by an outside person from from texas a retired army colonel who was working with rudy giuliani and working with other key people who were on the inside and team trump and developed this powerpoint basically for explaining why and how trump could declare a national security emergency, which, uh, if that doesn't sound like another name for a coup, I don't know what is. And, you know, how government officials could seize paper ballots, you know, that were cast in this election. And, and, uh, you know, just really banana republic type stuff that was in this PowerPoint. And yet this PowerPoint was shared with certain members of Congress and and the Senate up on Capitol Hill. We don't we don't know which ones yet. But you know, clearly, even if it wasn't generated by people working inside the White House, it seems to have been embraced by people who were supporting this cause of not certifying Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. So it's just a it's just a snapshot of how advanced the thinking and planning was on the on this on this idea that whatever happened on January 6 could devolve into a situation where. Trump could declare this coup like national emergency. The related issue that I've really been focused on lately, and I 
touched on it today in my newsletter, and I also um, am probably going to write about it in my next column that will be published Sunday, in the, in this coming Sunday in the Inquirer, but is the role of the National Guard, because again, we, we, we now have an email from Mark Meadows saying that that the National Guard is standing by and is ready to intervene on behalf of, quote, pro-Trump uh, people who are going to be in Washington on January 6th. And I think I think what that real is really saying there is I think they really anticipated uh, incorrectly, as it turned out, that there would be clashes in Washington that day between people on the right and people on the left, you know, the people that are branded, for better or worse, as Antifa by Fox News and whatnot, uh, you know, uh, but really more more broadly kind of left-wing counter-protesters who, who did show up in D.C. for other uh, right-wing events and who did, you know, clash sometimes violently with uh, right-wing people. In fact, there was an incident in December of 2020 where there was street fighting between leftists and right-wing people in D.C. So I think I think the expectation was that that was going to happen on January 6th. And it's pretty alarming, you know, Ian, when you think about the big picture here, that um, the National Guard is standing by and they could have been called out much earlier to deal with, like, leftist counter-protesters, if there had been any, and uh, uh, possibly lock down the Capitol and really kind of teed things up for this national security emergency that was being talked about in the PowerPoint. But what happened is there were no leftist protesters. In fact, as people began to realize that January 6th was going to be a big deal, people, you know, influencers on social media said, look, if you if you want to protest this, don't. Don't go to D.C. Don't don't take the bait. In fact, that was a hashtag. Don't take the bait on Twitter. Uh, You know, don't show up. And as we know, there basically what there were no counter protesters to to the uh, January 6th insurrection in D.C. that day. And so instead, what happened is the uh, insurrectionists clashed directly with the police with no intervening fights with the left. And uh, uh, and then it was city of D.C. officials were begging the National Guard to get involved. But the National Guard was clearly reluctant to intervene on behalf of uh, to intervene against the pro-Trump protesters, I mean, that which gets back to Meadows' email. So instead, you know, the National Guard and, and the Pentagon, who had control over operational control over the National Guard, did nothing for hours. And I think we're starting to understand why that why this is. And I think we're starting to understand how if just a few things have gone differently, you know, if if there had been these fights with Antifa versus uh, the right, for example, you know, and, and if the National Guard had swooped in at one o'clock, say, in the afternoon before before Congress had voted. And if, um, obviously, if Mike Pence had been bullied and browbeaten into cooperating with Trump's plans to uh, not certify the results, you know, if these things had just gone a little bit differently, we, we could be <laughs> in a very different situation right now. You know, that at the very least, the country could have been plunged into kind of Kabul-style chaos for days, you know, uh, before this all got worked out. So uh, I think we, I think we're really learning the extent to which we dodged a bullet on January 6th. Well, Will Bunch, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Will Bunch, who is an award-winning national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he blogs at attitude.com, that's A-T-T-Y-T-O-O-D.com, and is the author of The Backlash, Right-Wing Radicals, High-Def Huxtas, and Paranoid Politics in the Age of Obama, and The Burn Identity, A Search for Bernie Sanders and the New American Dream. And his latest articles at the Philadelphia Inquirer are Nothing is More Important than Team Trump's January PowerPoint Urging a Full-Blown Coup, and Tornadoes Rip the Roof Off American Capitalism. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into remarks by Liz Cheney, the Republican co-chair of the House Select Committee, suggesting that Trump may eventually be charged for corruptly seeking to impede Congress's proceedings. 
It's like being on trial for your life with a public defender. Let the jury fill the seats up and start the court calendar off with docket number nine millimeter. All rise, the Honorable Jay-Z preside. Instead of a mallet, I hold a tool. All objections overruled. Save your opening arguments. Hope you understand it. Two guns, right over left. That's how I cross-examine. Like Tom Cruise, popping with the top gun. You lose. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Giat, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic who has been the recipient of Guggenheim Fulbright and other fellowships, an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker, and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, and The Washington Post and other publications. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power, and how to counter them. And she has an article at MSNBC. Mark Meadows' PowerPoint is about more than January the 6th. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Ben-Gia. Thank you. So in addressing the Mark Meadows' refusal to show up, even though he'd sent over a 1,000 pages of documentation, he'd agreed to talk to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, but then he reversed himself, and the assumption is under pressure from Donald Trump, even though he's he's written a book and he's out publicizing a book, and apparently Trump himself is annoyed about some of the stuff that uh, Meadows revealed in the book. So it's a pretty weak case that he has, that somehow he ha- he's hiding behind executive privilege when he's been blabbing all over the place. But I thought the most interesting thing that came out of the announcements from the committee, particularly from Liz Cheney yesterday, when they voted unanimously to hold Mark Meadows in criminal contempt of the Congress, what Liz Cheney said, she said in terms of a rhetorical question, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to impede Congress's proceedings? And what she just said was, in effect, identical to the text of a federal statute. So do you think that Trump could himself could be in trouble? I think so. I'm not I'm not a lawyer or an investigator, so I don't have the knowledge of the, the technicalities. But clearly, the more that comes out, including information around this, this PowerPoint for the coup, and it's one of its authors, this Colonel Phil Waldron, met with Trump uh, personally in the Oval Office on November 25th. And the more that comes about it, all about all the contacts and discussions, then it, it's, it becomes way harder to argue that Trump didn't have anything to do with this. And, and Meadows' book is very interesting because it's, it's a kind of ritualistic show of loyalty toward Trump, <clears throat> where he even claims that Trump was mortified by the assault on the Capitol. And he's trying to just you know, save Trump, and he's required by authoritarian cult rituals to save Trump. Uh, but it's all very shaky, and the more that comes out, and he, he must feel, he meadows, uh, he handed over all this stuff, and now that's, it's all becoming more and more, and more incriminating, and no wonder Trump is, uh, is cross with him. Well, the other thing that's exposed, and it's hardly news, and this is something that you work on in terms of, of an historian of fascist regimes like Mussolini and Hitler, is the extent to which we have this naked propaganda machine in the form of Fox News. The idea that in some of these emails that Mark Meadows gave the committee, you find all of these pleas from these Fox, their top sort of headline broadcasters, begging Mark Meadows to get Trump to stop the insurgency as it was happening. And you've got pleas from Laura Ingram saying it's going to destroy his legacy and the same from Brian Kilmeade saying the same thing. You've got Donald Trump several times texting Meadows saying, you know, you've got to get my father for reasons I don't understand why he couldn't text his own father to stop this bleep from happening. So these are the same people that clearly saw what was happening on January the 6th as being 
something that they didn't approve of and that was going to hurt Trump and, and hurt all their efforts to support him. But then they've changed, haven't they? They've been a part of this massive propaganda offensive to change the narrative. And this is what they've succeeded in, in this stop the steal narrative. Well, because if they're going to keep keep up with the cult of Trump, they have no choice. Uh, they, I think January 6th was truly where no one had gone before. It broke many, many taboos. And the fact that even someone like Laura Ingraham was shocked and said it was going to be bad, recognized that she she thought this was a, a, a limit that was being passed or trespassed, right? But Trump doesn't care. Like, maybe she hadn't adequately figured out who Trump is, but he doesn't care. And so then... You know, instead, it became the, uh, a kind of game which they've been quite successful at to spin January 6th so that Trump remains a hero and is not toxic. And I've said before that the real moment of reckoning of the Republican Party and all of the Fox, all of its allies in the media was January 7th, when they could have discarded Trump very easily because he was such a toxic property. And instead, uh, they chose to double down. And once you wedge yourself to that course, you have to go all the way. And that's what they're doing. And I'm sure they're amazed at how successful they've been, how many people they've gotten to go along and debase themselves further and further, how people have believed their lies. Because one of the sad things about authoritarian history is a lot of these uh, strongmen never think they're going to get away with what they do. And it makes them scorn their people all the more. And again, I'm speaking with Ruth Biengout, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a culture and critic and internationally acclaimed historian, speaker and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, The Washington Post and other publications. And her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. And she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power, and how to counter them. And she has an article at MSNBC. Mark Meadows' PowerPoint is about more than January the 6th. Well, on January the 7th, the house that had just been sacked by these marauders who desecrated the capital and defecated and threatened the lives, literally, these, these Congress people were cowering down and terrified. And yet, the very next day, early in the morning after the finally the vice president certified Biden's victory, 147 Republican representatives in the Congress voted not to certify Biden's victory. And they voted then on the basis of this lie that Biden had not won. It was almost like it, it just was manufactured right there. And this was just after the minority leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, had excoriated Trump for what he'd done. So something happened there, and I've never been able to figure out what happened at that moment, where they collectively made a decision that it was in the interest of the Republican Party to say that Biden is an illegitimate president. And they, through the propaganda efforts of Fox News and these very same people who are wringing their hands on the very day of the attack on the Capitol, who then turned around and beat the drum with the, and propagated this lie. The result is, in a CNN poll in September, found that 78% of Republicans believe Biden's victory was illegitimate. And another poll done at the University of Chicago finds that 65 million Americans believe that Joe Biden stole the election and is an illegitimate president. And then within that 65 million, there is 21 million who believe violence is justified to restore Trump to the presidency. So if you've got 21 million Americans believing that violence will be necessary to bring back Trump in 2024 or even before then, then out of that pool of 21 million, you better believe there's a lot of dangerous people out there. Yeah, and it's it's a testament to how propaganda works and how savvy the Republicans have been at getting people into the right mentality in two ways. One, since 2016, Trump has been casting doubt on every aspect of the election system in America. 
And this is five years now of constant battering of the credibility of our elections and all the candidates who are Democrat who win because of it. So first it was, you know, and then Hillary was supposed to be locked up, criminalizing anybody who gets in his way. So so there's that. The other part of it, which is equally disturbing, is this attempt to get Americans into a kind of survivalist mentality. So it's not just that your elections are rigged and Biden is Ill- there illegitimately and poor Trump, the, the leader, the victim has been wronged. It's also that Biden is going to drag the nation into ruin. And now they've, you know, they've been starting with this uh, Biden as a socialist tyrant. Socialism is coming. And this is the old right wing playbook that I cover extensively in my book, Strongmen. And like, who knew this was going to be so relevant to America? Um, I go through Franco and Pinochet and we have Bolsonaro who, who was elected, but is always praising the military dictatorship Brazil had. And there's lots of ties between Bolsonaro and, and Trump and his son, Eduardo, was in uh, Washington on January 5th talking to the Trump family. So this old right wing playbook requires that uh, even if it's going to be a coup, which is, you know, quick and, and supposed to be secret, you have to get people in the right mentality to accept it. And that's what when you talk about that poll where so many Americans think that even violence is OK, you're getting people to see violence as something that's even patriotic and even necessary. And that's why they've gotten away with this, you know, with uh, these these thugs who were bashing Capitol Police heads and 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 you know 140 of them injured some are no longer with us and somehow this quote law and order republican party uh emerges uh even more popular with its base but the coup attempt on january the 6th came quite close and as this uh, powerpoint that meadows has handed over to the select committee indicates you know they were prepared and trump himself had discussed the idea of a national emergency, which is right out of the dictator's playbook, declaring that and then and then having his coup and somehow, uh, even if the vice president wouldn't go along with it, they had enough allies. In fact, we're going to be learning about who some of these people in the House are that were supporting this coup, according to Benny Thompson, the chair of the select committee. So there'll be more information coming out. But it's pretty clear to me, and there's a good cover uh, article in the, the Atlantic by Bart Gelman on this. Mm-hmm. Have you read it, Ruth? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, he's saying the coup almost succeeded back then, but since then, the Republican Party has, has laid the groundwork for being successful in 2022 and 2024 with voter suppression, comprehensive, multi-layered voter suppression. So this is where I think we're sleepwalking through history. It's all happening before our eyes. Where is the pushback? Do you think that just revealing this stuff to the American people about who these people are and what they tried to do will be sufficient? Um, investigation is important. Prosecution is even more important. And one of the, the dr- dramatic uh, qualities of our time is that there is a lot of pushback. In fact, the House just passed the Protecting Our Democracy Act which uh, I was able to see an advanced copy of and is tailor-made to stop somebody like Trump. It even has a provision about uh, no presidential misuse of emergency, states of emergency powers. (laughs) It has everything. Now, so Democrats are more aware than people give them credit for, for what's happening. I mean, they're also being threatened every day. Threats against members of Congress are up 107% in 2021. And so the, the problem is that we're in an emergency and the, the time frame of democratic justice and investigation is slow because precisely because you're not in an authoritarian state where you just, uh, like Trump, he was admiring, you know, the Ch- to the Chinese head of state, he's like, oh, how great, you can just execute people. Or like in North Korea, his friend, he sends, le- you know, love letters to the head of North Korea. So here you can't do that. And so it takes time and you have to amass evidence. And the question will be, do we have that time? 
Well, though, that the, f- the fact that this propaganda has worked with Stop the Steal, creating this majority of 78% of Republicans believing that Biden's not a legitimate president, if you can sell that without any evidence whatsoever, you can sell pretty much anything, can't you? That's what frightens me. I don't know how you prick that bubble of delusion that Fox News keeps these people sealed in. Yeah, it's very it's very difficult, but prosecution is shown a, a lot of times in history. It's rare that strong men get prosecuted, but in cases where they have been, like Berlusconi, who ruled in a democracy but did all kinds of autocratic things, and Pinochet in Chile, who had a dictatorship, when they eventually get prosecuted, it's when that's when their personality cult bubble bursts because people see that they're not, in fact, above the law. They're not untouchable. They're not superhuman. And so people worry, oh, if we prosecute, go after Trump, or then we'll have you know, violence in the streets. Now, that is more of a worry in America because we're the only country that has 400 million guns in circulation in private hands. And 21, mil- 21 million Americans uh, who feel that violence will be necessary. Yeah, and so there, here there are many, many people who almost would look forward to an occasion to use those guns. But in the long run, uh, what's the alternative? You just, you just shrink away, afraid. You have to prosecute and, and stand up for the rule of law and accountability or else uh, you're done. Well, we're back to um, what Liz Cheney said uh, on Monday in the Congress from the committee that's investigating uh, January the 6th that she asked rhetorically, did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to impede Congress's proceedings? And that's the text that's, that's identical to the text of the federal statute. So we may finally see uh, the orange man in an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a, a good... Uh... A good it's president. necessary. It's not good. Yeah, it's, it's necessary, isn't it? It's it's absolutely necessary. This is someone that I think that it's very hard to even grasp the scope of Trump's criminality. Uh, it's not just Russia. It's that for for decades, this is somebody who has associated with mafias of several countries and his business. Uh, I interviewed a kleptocracy expert for on my uh, newsletter, Lucid, and Donald Trump, through his real estate business, has been on the supply side of, of kleptocracy for decades. That's his, part of his business. Yeah, money he, laundering, basically. Yes. And so if you think he is a global money launderer, as well as a sexual assaulter, serial sexual assaulter, uh, as well as the Trump-Russia stuff and all the things now going on. So it's, it's quite staggering. If anyone ever needed to be prosecuted, it would be him. Well, Ruth Ben-Gad, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Ben-Gad, who's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and a cultural critic and an internationally acclaimed historian, speaker, and political commentator for The Atlantic, CNN, The Washington Post, and other publications. Her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present, and she recently founded Lucid, an online publication about threats to democracy, abuses of power, and how to counter them, and she has an article at MSNBC. Mark Meadows' PowerPoint is about more than January 6th. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the 
Bye.